0: Today we are starting a new series, and uh, the series is entitled Loosing Hope, and Loosing Hope is uh, kind of a a play on words, a pun of sorts, Um, uh, but the last couple of weeks, really the whole world has been celebrating Jesus coming into the world, and this is an action where where God basically unleashes hope into the world. It's this moment that changes history, and uh, God looses hope in the world through Jesus, and, and so hope comes to the world, but hope also comes uh, to our hearts. And so for the next uh, four weeks, I want to talk about what does hope mean for us as a new church? And then what does hope mean uh, for this, this community? What does it mean for us to lose hope here in this neighborhood? And uh, so if you want to open to Second to Samuel chapter nine, that's where we'll get started. And uh, basically, the, the, my big idea today is this, that no one is beyond hope, that hope is for everyone. Unless you watched the Cardinals game yesterday, you realize they were beyond hope, yes. No, but, uh, but this is the idea, really, this is the, the, the message of, of, uh, of Christianity, is, is no one is beyond hope. And hope is offered to all of us. And uh, I want to look at a story today of, of a person with a really strange name, and uh, we'll kind of unpack what's going on in his life and find um, that he, he is able to, to get hope. And it's, this takes place uh, when King David is on the throne in Second Samuel chapter 9. We know the story of David. He's the guy that slayed the, the giant. Uh, he's the poet who wrote the Psalms. He's one of uh, the greatest kings in Israel's history. And uh, he's on the throne right here. And I want to just start reading... It starts in in verse one of chapter nine. It says this, David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So a couple of characters that David talks about, Saul, who was the king before David and uh, a a king that was an okay king, but a king that also was uh, very insecure. And out of those insecurities came all sorts of dysfunction. Saul had a son named Jonathan who David was uh, dear friends with. It was his best friend. And so when David becomes king, um, there's a little bit of uh, drama that takes place, and, and Saul gets ousted. David becomes king, and then David asks this question, Is there anyone in the house of Saul whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Then in verse 6, after conversation takes place, they find out that there is one of Jonathan's sons, this man named Mephibosheth is how I'm going to pronounce it. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, and he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, Mephibosheth replied. He said, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, "Uh, what is your servant that you should notice uh, that you should notice a dead dog like me. And the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I give you your master's grandson, everything that belonged uh, to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table, says that again. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands uh, his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's grandsons. So there's this story of this man named Mephibosheth, and we find out that he's actually sons of David's really good friend, Jonathan. Uh, It goes on to say Mephibosheth had a a young son named uh, Mika, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. So a bunch of little details uh, that are in the story that just want to unpack. Uh, Mephibosheth um, is basically uh, being restored here by King David, and this is really significant because if you know anything about this time period in history, if a new king comes to the throne, what that king would do, he would go and he would find the old king's family, and he would basically just slaughter them, just wipe them out. And uh, it's kind of like a Game of Thrones scenario where if there's anyone left from the family from the old regime, they're going to eventually come after you and claim the throne. And so uh, what would typically happen right here is that if you're Mephibosheth, your life is in danger. And David's coming after you and he's going to take you out. He's just going to wipe you out so that there's no threat. There's no way that you could be basically trying to reclaim, reclaim the throne. And so what we find is that Mephibosheth is basically ostracized. And he's he's cast out, and he's hiding, and he's living in this place called Lo De, De Bar. Uh Lo Debar is basically like this desert wasteland. It means literally not a pasture there. So he's hiding out in this place where he it, it, it's it's kind of remote. It's away from where anyone can find him, and and there's basically no food. He's living in poverty, hiding, living in poverty, ostracized, knowing that at any moment the new king could come. And take his life. So, if you imagine if you're Mephibosheth, your dad and your, your granddad used to be really powerful people who had just significant roles in society, and now you're completely cast out, and there's this new king here, and you're in hiding. The second thing that we find is that he's disabled. We find that he's crippled both of his feet. And if we look in the story in Second Samuel chapter 4, what we find is that when Saul dies, and when, when Jonathan, when they basically the, the kingdom gets taken over by David, and he comes into power. Mephibosheth is only five years old, and as a five-year-old, my, my son's four. He's almost five, so probably the age of our son Micah. His nanny basically takes him and tries to get out of Dodge, so she just jets. She gets away. She knows this is what happens when a new king comes into power. This five-year-old boy is going to basically, his life is in danger. I got to get him out of here, and in the rush of her running away, she, she drops him, and it cripples. It breaks both of his feet at five years old, and at that point in, in history, they don't really have great you know, knowledge of medicine and how to fix someone that has broken both feet at that age. So his feet never really heal. They never grow, and we find that he's crippled. Um, he's crippled and unable to walk. So not only is his life in danger, not only is he basically ostracized and living outside of, of the kingdom and hiding, um, but he can't walk. So this is a crippled, crippled man for his entire life. So when he comes to David after... Uh, Years of wondering if God had cursed or hated him because of his situation. He calls himself a dead dog. A dead dog. That's how he views himself. And he comes to him and says, basically, what why would you come and what what do you want from me? This this dead dog that I am? Maybe he's thinking, David's finally found me and he's getting ready to just take me out. So he comes in complete humility. He comes with a very low self-esteem, low view of who he is, and he says that he's basically this dead dog. Uh, this term dead dog in, in this time uh, is, has more significance than, than just basically roadkill. Um, this term dead dog is used three different times in the book of Samuel. Once by David, when he was a young man and Saul was trying to take David out, Saul catches up with David and, and David basically says, I'm just like a dead dog to you, Saul. What would you?" And then, and then what we find is Saul has mercy on him at this point. And it's the same term that Saul's grandson now uses with David saying, Um, Who am I but just a dead dog? This is this very low view of of yourself, and this is what uh, Mephibosheth feels about himself. Very uh, basically humiliated. And even if you look at Mephibosheth's name, meth uh, means a a shameful thing. And so this is just a very pitiful person, creature, human, cast out, I imagine pictures of like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, just living on his own, completely like... uh, uh, crippled and uh, and and if he's living in a place where there's not an abundance of food, he's probably malnourished, has nothing. And David says, "Bring the the to me." And what we find is that when when David meets with him, he's got this agreement with his his father Jonathan, who is his dear friend, that he's going to take care of this family instead of wiping them out. And so when we think of what Mephibosheth, he has no idea this is going to happen. He has no idea how David is going to deal with them. His current reality is a, is, a, is a place of despair. If you think about what would you be like if you were Mephibosheth, what would life be like for you? Not a lot of hope. Uh, you're living in hiding. You're living crippled um, and in malnourished. And there's not a lot of hope that life is going to get better. What we find is, uh, really, there's three kinds of scenarios of despair that Mephibosheth is living in. And whenever I read through Scripture, what I like to do is say, uh, how do I identify with characters in, in this story? And, uh, and in what ways uh, do I experience what they've experienced? Um, the three scenarios that Mephibosheth is experiencing the despair is that all of us, including Mephibosheth, we've experienced suffering that was no one's fault, but it's due to circumstances. I think that's true of our life. We experience suffering that's no one else's fault. It's simply due to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. This is Mephibosheth. He's five years old when his world falls apart. There's nothing that he has done wrong to become crippled. There's nothing that he has done wrong other than being born into the family of Saul to be cast out. And this is true. Oftentimes we find ourselves in situations where we experience suffering and it's, it's not our fault. It's just the scenario that we find ourselves in. I've lived a pretty sheltered life. I'm 32 years old and grew up in Scottsdale and haven't really suffered um, very much. But when I think of, of, of suffering that was outside of my control, one of the probably the most devastating things that had happened to to, to me and my family happens about two years ago. And it was with our young, youngest son, Micah, who was about three and a half at the time. And uh, we had just gone through just a really uh, big transition in our life. We were moving to Texas and then coming back and Went through uh, just a lot of uh, challenges with, with kind of what we were doing. And we had these dreams of what, you know, what God was going to do through our lives. And the whole thing kind of fell apart. And we came back kind of limping. And uh, we get back to Phoenix. We're trying to figure out what to do, uh, what to do next. And we know kind of like what God's called us to do. We're trying to figure out. And then in the midst of all of that, our son gets sick. And uh, he gets sick. And, and it starts out with just diarrhea. And if you've had a three-year-old uh, son who's ever had that, you know, kind of, it, it, it's no fun um, changing diapers um, with, with diarrhea. And so Micah would get sick, and he would, he would uh, we'd have to change his diaper basically like every, every hour and a half to two hours. And then it kind of started to speed up, and we thought, oh, man, he must have got some sort of bug flu. So we take him in to the doctor, and the doctor says, oh, yeah, he must have something. And, you know, it, it's probably just going to be like a 24-hour thing, so we come home. And uh, keeps going past 24 hours. Uh, our son Mike has diarrhea. It gets so bad that if you, you've ever experienced diaper rash with, with the son or with a baby, imagine that the diaper rash and then diarrhea changing every hour. All of a sudden, the diaper rash gets so bad. He he starts to you know break out with these sores and he's bleeding. And so then it's like miserable because he's screaming and he's crying and this is really a, a gross story. But we, we, start, we start realizing like he's, he's not sleeping, and he won't take in any liquid because it just goes right through him. And then he goes to the bathroom, and he's screaming, and he's in pain. And, and so this isn't good. It looks like he's getting dehydrated. We should probably go back to the doctor. And we said, this has been going on now for like 48 hours. And they, they say, well, why don't you take him into the hospital? And, uh, and you know doctors are trying to be um, if, if anything, over, over um, protective and, and make sure everything's okay. So we, oh, great, take him into the, the doctor, take him into the hospital. We're in the emergency room trying to figure out what happened. So they're, they're trying to say, oh, you know, he's, we, can't, we can't stop diarrhea from, from, from coming out of him. Maybe there's something wrong with his stomach. So they start doing all sorts of these tests, and we're putting Mica in all these different uh, x-rays. And, and that's kind of a, a scary moment, having your son go through that. And then uh, he's so dehydrated that he's just completely pale, and he's like a, kind of this white-green color, which is scary for your 3-year-old. So they start hooking up to these IVs, and so we, you know, we're watching them put needles into him, and our 3-year-old son, that's, that's pretty hard. run all these tests, they can't figure out you know, what's wrong with them. So they say, you know, it, it, just, it must be a really bad case of diarrhea. We're going to take some stool samples and see if there's something that he ate or if there's some sort of sickness, but why don't you just take him home? And uh, so we take him home again, and we still can't figure out what's going on. The kid hasn't slept in days, and, uh, and we haven't slept in days, so we're delirious. And it, it's a Monday morning, and Marcy goes into work, and, and, uh, and Micah is just completely out of it. And um, it's one of those things where you, you start as a parent like panicking, realizing like something is not right with this kid. And he's completely exhausted, completely dehydrated again after all the IVs. And so I end up kind of just calling Marcy and say I'm, I'm taking him back to the hospital. Something's wrong. So we, we take him back in and, and uh, they're like, yeah, you know, he should be getting better. We give him some, some medicine. And, and, and so then they start to do more tests on him. and They're, they're checking out all these different things with his intestines and, and nothing, nothing can, can stop the diarrhea from coming. So this has been going on for like three days. And I remember that Monday night, we're in the hospital with Micah and he can't talk, so he can't really tell us you know, what's going on? And there's this moment of, of we're just holding him and uh, basically just changing, changing his diaper, holding him. And you see this panic in his face. And at this point, the diarrhea has basically just turned to blood. And blood's coming out. Um, it's very disturbing. <laughs> it's very disturbing. And um, we're, we're crying out to God, like, what in the world is wrong with our son? There's no explanation. No tests are coming back. What is wrong? With our son. And so that continues all night. We can't sleep. We stay up with him, just holding him as the stuff just kind of like oozes out of him. Completely uh, helpless. And we don't know what it is. I remember that night, that Monday night, um, completely panicking and thinking, this is basically uh, completely outside of my control. We can't do anything about it. He's suffering like crazy, and, and all we can do is cry out to God. And that night, I remember just being mad at God, screaming to God, desperate. Anything that I could do, crying out in prayer that God would, would come through and figure it out. We got him hooked up to IVs. We got him on different pain meds. And, and, and finally, he starts to just kind of calm down. It was one of the longest nights of my life. Probably by the fourth day, uh, the tests come back that he actually had on the first day. It took like three days to get the results. We find out that he has Salmonella Typhi. This is uh, a very dangerous thing. Salmonella Typhi. Um, it's only found in, the, in third world countries. We have no idea how we got it. But they said, good thing that you brought him in um, when you did, because this is this is a killer. It takes people out. And then, as so, I I go on you know web and I'm trying to figure out everything I can about Salmonella Typhi. And I find out that it's something that's um, just, if you look back through history, Salmonella typhi is where we get kind of this, a lot of different diseases, but they think that's actually the disease that killed Alexandria the Great, was Salmonella typhi. We, I'm reading through all this stuff, and it's like the, the, the first colony on Roanoke Island that came to America. The whole thing gets wiped out by Salmonella typhi. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, my son has this. I have no idea how he got it, but this is a killer disease. It's just, and they get the right meds into him at that point, and they're able to, to attack it. And Micah is basically kind of his life comes back, and he's restored. And, and what we find is life comes back into him. This moment is probably one of the most uh, terrible moments of my life, watching your child go through something like that. And we had to meet with uh, basically the—I the, I can't remember what it was called now. The, the, the State Health Advisory Council came in trying to figure out You know what? What had happened? What had caused this? What has he been around? Was he touched? Where has he been? There's only been like four cases of this in Arizona in the last year. We go through all these kind of interviews with him, trying to figure out what went wrong, and we can't find anything. Just completely out of our control. Have no idea how it happened. We're pretty um, sanitary people, and our son just suffers greatly. We experience suffering that's no one's fault. It's just due to circumstances. And to feel that and feel the weight of that, for me that was this moment like Mephibosheth where it's like, it's not my fault, but I'm stuck here and it's despair. Absolute despair. Absolute despair where you're just crying out, hoping for anything. The second part of despair, we've experienced suffering that was directly due to the sinful actions of other people. Suffering that's due to what someone else has done to us. The story of our son Micah, we have no idea where that came from. No no one had planted that on Micah. It was just out of our control. But there's another kind of despair when other people intentionally do things and their choices affect our lives. Their choices hurt us. Their choices cause us to go into these these places of despair. My wife, Marcy, has... Been very passionate about uh, a topic that's really kind of big in our country right now with this idea of, of sex trafficking and fighting sex trafficking. And so uh, for the last couple of years, she's worked kind of closely with organizations. My sister has as well worked with this organization called Shared Hope. And uh, when we were in Texas, Marcy was working with an organization called Traffic 911 and trying to, to help fight human trafficking. Um, and, and one of the things that was really eye-opening to both of us is we kind of got involved in this cause um, was that a lot of the 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 people the gals that are involved in human trafficking who who are basically being sold for sex are really young they 're not older women, most of them are ages from twelve to fifteen and and as Marcy had kind of got involved in in this uh, issue and started working with some of the gals that were coming off the street in it, what she found was that most of them were were just like in junior high and you have to start wondering how did girls in in that age get involved in in this kind of an ind- industry where they're they're selling themselves and 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 so she would go down um, to basically like the the juvenile delinquent center and meet with these gals that they had pulled off the street and and kind of do counseling with them and and the stories that were coming out of their lives were absolutely. Terrible, these stories of what other people had done to them or the, the, the homes that they had grown up in and the, how their parents had neglected them or not been around and how other people had come in and basically taken advantage of their lives and, and used them for their own good. And Marcia would come back from these counseling sessions with these young junior high girls and she would just be devastated. She would be absolutely devastated at the situation that these young gals were in. And as they tried to basically rehab these gals and get them off the street, one of the hardest things to do is is psychologically deal with gals who have been treated that way at such an early age. And they they live in these very dark worlds. There's not a lot of bright hope for the future. And it's not anything that they've done, but it's what's been done against them. And some of the, the things that Marcy came back with, with just hearing these stories, uh just completely, you know, frustrated me and, and ticked me off that people would do that. But for these young gals, to experience that. What other people had done to them that have caused them to live in despair. Um, it's a very dark world that we live in. And I, and I, I don't know, that's kind of, I, I, to me, that's one of the most extreme evils that we see. But we live in despair because a lot of times people just hurt us. People take advantage of us. People do things to us that are absolutely devastating. For Mephibosheth, what's been done to him His life's been taken from him, and he's been cast out, and he's living in this despair and fear that if he ever goes back to these people, he could be harmed. And He's living in the state of despair that his suffering is caused by things that other people have done to him or have threatened to do to him. The third form of despair, we have experienced suffering that was due to our own poor choices, our own poor choices. We've experienced suffering due to our own choices. I'm not a very smart or wise person. Um, What I've realized is that I make a lot of mistakes and live with the consequences of, of what those mistakes are. And some of the suffering that I've experienced in life has been outside of my control. Some of it's been caused by other people. And some of it's just been because I make boneheaded decisions. I make boneheaded mistakes. I, I, for for Marcin, one of the things that we experienced early on in our marriage was unbelievable financial strife. And coming out of college in uh, 2005, hitting the workforce, um, there weren't a whole lot of jobs available. And uh, so we started both working and, and uh, thinking that we could have the whole world at our fingertips. End up buying a house in 2006, which was probably the worst time in the history of the universe to buy a house. And so uh, we just felt like we had to have it, and we needed it, and, and uh, wanted the life uh, that our parents had. And so we buy this house, and, and then about a month after we bought it, literally a month after we bought it, the whole economy just tanks. Bottom falls out of everything. And then we're stuck in this house that's worth probably about a third of what we bought it for. And as we were getting ready to buy this house, we had some people saying, you should do it. It's just going to keep going up. This is like Southern California. The market's just going to flow through the roof. And then uh, we had this conversation where Marcy's dad came and he saw the house that we we're going to buy and he said, you guys are crazy. I would never do that. I would never buy a house. First of all, you're way too young to buy a house. You don't have the money that you could put down on it. This thing's way too inflated. North, we just said, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You, don't, you live in Michigan. Houses aren't worth anything there. And, and so we went forward and bought the house and then had to, to suffer the consequences of what that's like to buy a house Buying high and selling low. Don't recommend it. And, and what happens, uh, that, that sets you back early in, in, in life when you do something like that, when you make mistakes financially. So those, there's a sort of suffering that comes from us, our own pursuit of happiness, our own pursuit of trying to have something instantly, instant gratification, and then suffering with the consequences and it's not like that was something that was extremely, like, an evil thing that we wanted. I think it's completely fine. But living with the consequences of the choices that we make is challenging. And, and what I've found is that that was just something, you know, financially, but that happens also all the time. We get stuck in situations that we're, we just don't think that we'll ever get out of them because of the choices that we make. And here's the thing about Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth and his choices. As, he, as he's living in this place where he's completely outcast, where he's completely crippled, he has this view that God has cursed him. He has this view that, that God has turned his back on him, and rightfully so um, with what he's gone through. But he decides to continue to live in it. He decides to continue to live in, in this place that has no pasture. He never has hope that anything better can happen. So he makes these decisions that, that he's going to stay in the despair. He's going to stay in the darkness. He's going to stay in the desert. And he never thinks that anything better can happen for him. And it's almost like his his own worldview and his own choices have kept him trapped in this place. So when David comes to him, he actually thinks that his life is worth nothing, that he's a dead dog. And when David comes to him and, and he realizes how just pitiful this guy's life is, he's still living. He's living in the shame. He's living in hiding. He's living in the desert. And then David comes to him knowing everything that he's gone through, and he probably looks at this man who's completely malnourished and crippled, and David offers him hope. It says that the king says, I will show you kindness, and I will restore you. I'll show you kindness, and I will restore you. And he goes on to say, you will eat at my table. And so David looks at him and says, I know the life that you live in is a life of despair. I know that you're in circumstances that were outside of your control. I know people have done terrible things to you. And I know that you've decided to just stay in that situation. And you're probably terrified of me right now, but I'm gonna show you kindness and I'm going to restore you. And, I'm, and, he, and he basically takes all of what was owed to him through his grandfather, Saul, and he gives it to him. And he says, we're gonna restore your life and you don't have to live in fear. Of me anymore, and so what we find is that David fulfills basically the hope of being restored to him. The choices of Mephibosheth, the choices of others, are no longer held against this man. What other people have done to him, whatever his circumstances, that's no longer held against him. David says it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter that kings kill the king's family prior to them. So I'm no longer going to hold that against you. Mephibosheth is set free from his own poor choices. David says, you no longer have to live in the desert where there is no pasture, but you can come and eat at my table. And then he basically restores everything to him that was owed to him. This unbelievable story of kindness coming from King David, a story of kindness, a story of hope, where he looks at his situation, he looks at everything that he's gone through and says, I'm going to restore all of this to you. I think this is significant when we look at the life of Jesus. Just a a quick story as we end. The life of Jesus in Luke 18, 35. I just want to read the story. And, And I feel like there's something that's tied here with what happens with David. And in this story, it says, As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard the crowd going by, he asked, What was happening? And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out to Jesus and he says this, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and he ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want for me to do? And Lord, I want to see, he replied. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. So this blind man comes to Jesus and his cry for help is interesting because he probably knows a little bit about Jesus's reputation. But he cries out these words, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. David, the king that showed kindness to Mephibosheth. The blind man brings up the name of David again. And he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, What do you want? And he says, I wish to see again. And Jesus restores the man's sight. Through Jesus, uh, this man is restored. Through the son of David, through this new king that we have, kindness is shown, which is a very simple truth uh, to this story when it comes to Mephibosheth, David, the blind man of Jesus. And it's simply this go to the next slide. The goodness of the king is more powerful than the suffering. Of our past. That's where hope is found in Scripture. That the goodness of this King that we have in Jesus is more powerful than any kind of suffering that we go through, any kind of despair, any kind of circumstance that we think has no hope, any kind of pain that's caused by the actions and, and, and choices of other people that keep us in suffering. Anytime we make mistakes on our own and we're living with the consequences of our own mistakes. The goodness of the king is more powerful than our suffering and our situation. It was for Mephibosheth with David. It was for the blind man with Jesus. And it is with us, with Jesus. The goodness of our king is more powerful than the suffering that we face. So today, as we close, I don't know what what you're going through, what life is like, where you're at in your journey. Um, But a couple things to reflect. If we want to be a place of hope, if we want to be a church that offers hope to other people, hope needs to resonate in our own hearts. Hope needs to flow out of us. And, and I think that, that this is something that we need to come to God, to sit at his feet, and allow whatever our situation is to experience the kindness of our king, the goodness of our king. And so I'm not sure where you're at today, but let's just take some time to reflect on these three scenarios Any of these following things that Mephibosheth goes through has tempted you to be hopeless in life right now. Maybe it's your circumstances that are outside of your control. Uh, There's nothing that you've done, but you're in these hopeless circumstances. Maybe it's uh, someone else's choices, something that um, has been done to you, maybe intentionally or unintentionally, but you're living now Almost as in exile because of what other someone else has done for you, done against you, and you need you're just completely hopeless because of your situation, or maybe it's a mistake that you've made, and you're trying to figure out how to to move forward with life, suffering the consequences of your own mistakes, and it seems pretty hopeless. We just take a few moments and just uh, we're gonna take a moment of silence and just kind of reflect and write that down, and then Richard's gonna come back up, and as we close today. Um, as, you, as you write down whatever your circumstance is that, that feels like despair, the invitation is to come to the king's table, much like David offers to Mephibosheth, to come and eat at the king's table. And the king's table for us is, uh, we use communion uh, to symbolize eating at the king's table. And communion is set up over here. And the invitation is whatever it is that you're going through that feels like despair, uh, to write it down, To get it out and then to come and eat at the king's table. At the king's table, we have elements that represent what Jesus has done in the world. Uh, The bread that represents his body that's broken open. And the juice that represents his blood that was poured out. For all the suffering and despair of the world and and, and the suffering and despair that we go through in our own hearts um, is reconciled through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so today, maybe uh, you need to think of whatever your, your circumstance is that's despair write it down, and then come to the king's table and partake in the goodness and the life that he offers and the restoration that he offers. So let me pray, and then uh, when you're ready, feel free to to move to the king's table. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for not giving up on the world, for sending your son, Jesus. We celebrate him coming as a child, for Christmas, and we we celebrate the idea that you would unleash hope into history through him. Through him, we see you. Through him, your heart is revealed to us. Through him, all of our suffering and brokenness, our sin, the worst things about ourselves, Lord, the things that call us, that, that cause us to think of ourselves as a dead dog. Jesus takes all of that, Lord. He absorbs it on the cross. He conquers sin. He conquers death. And he offers us new life. We thank you for that. We thank you for your son. Lord, today I just pray that you would, uh, that you would meet us here in our, whatever our circumstances are, whatever situation that we're living in that seems hopeless. We'd find hope in the goodness of you. We'd find restoration. We'd find redemption. Lord, I just pray that you would unleash hope into our hearts. That we'd be a people of hope in this community. We'd know that you haven't given up on us. That we shouldn't give up on each other. And we just pray that your kingdom would continue to come here and now.